Turn your Bibles to John chapter 18. If you're using one of the blue chair Bibles, it's going to be on page 904. To begin our thinking this morning about the text, I want to take a slight risk and use an example from legislation. Uh, let me just say ahead of time, I'm not condoning legislation. I'm not making comments on whether it worked or didn't work. I'm just using it as an analogy, and if you want to talk later about it and your strong feelings about it, you can come talk to me later. With that being said, in the 90s, there was a law in California called the three-strike rule. And the idea was that if you committed subsequent felonies the imprisonment would increase with each subsequent felony with the idea being after the third felony, it was a very harsh punishment. And I want to speak a little bit to the intention. Again, whether or not it was a good law, I'm not really caring about that right now. But what I want to talk was the idea of creating a pattern. This idea of something happened once, you might be able to say, I didn't know, or I just made a youthful mistake. But the idea of something happening three times establishes a pattern, or could establish a pattern. After the third time of committing a serious felony, it is harder and harder to accept either mitigating circumstances or excuses. It just is, because this has happened before. You've been through the system. And it's this idea of pattern, this idea of removing mitigating circumstances or excuses or just, I made a mistake, that I want to bring to our text this morning as we look at the narrative leading up to the crucifixion. Because today we're going to look at the part of the story that deals with Peter's denial. And for many of you, this will be a familiar story. But one of the natural questions is, why did it have to be three times? Why does the Bible record not just one denial of Peter, but three denials of Peter. What does that teach us about Peter, but more importantly, what does that teach us about our sin and our guilt? Because the other part of this text is the contrast between Jesus and Peter. Because right dab in the middle of the denials of Peter is Jesus being interviewed by the high priest. And there's a great contrast between innocence and guilt. And I want to use today the denials of Peter and the innocence of Jesus for us to grow in our understanding of our sin, of what it means to be sinful people, and the guilt that is only forgiven in Jesus Christ. 
So our big idea this morning is this. Our guilt can only be forgiven by the innocent death of Jesus. So let's work through the text. We're going to see point one in your outline there. Guilty Peter, strike one. Look at verses 15 and 16 with me. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So Paul, or excuse me, so John sets the scene of what is going to happen in this part of the passage by explaining some of the details. How do we know what went on? And so we're told that Peter and another disciple, he is not named, I think it's true, the traditional view of holding that that is John who wrote this gospel. But for whatever reason, John doesn't like to use his name in situations like this. But that other disciple was known, he was acquaintances with or friends with the high priest. And so he is able to enter no problem into the house area of the high priest where this part of the trial is happening. But Peter doesn't. Peter doesn't have the access that this other disciple has. And so Peter is left outside until the other disciple walks back, talks to the servant girl at the gate, and says, hey, he's with me, you can let him in. We see here that Peter's in an awkward situation. He's obviously an outsider, whereas the other disciple is an insider. The other disciple is known to the people whose house he's at. Maybe the servant girl knew him, we don't know. But you can imagine just the uncomfortable nature of this. And so it probably shouldn't be a surprise at what happens in verses 17 and 18. Sort of already off kilter, we read, The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You are also not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Peter is stopped by the servant girl who is standing at the door, and Peter denies Christ for the first time. A couple things we need to notice here. Number one, we need to appreciate how the Bible treats the heroes of the Bible. If you were making this up, you would not have this story. But the Bible presents the reality of what happened and that even the heroes of the Bible, like Peter, were sinful people just like you and me. And secondly, related to that, if Peter's a sinner <laughs> who, who would go on to lead the newly formed church in the book of Acts and have a high position of leadership, if he's a sinner, it is a part of, it's a part of the evidence that we all are too. It's the great equalizer that even St. Peter, who is pictured at the pearly gates, his sin was evident. 
but at the same time, we can sympathize with Peter. Maybe this first time he got flustered by the question. Maybe he said it so that he could make sure to get in. Maybe he was just afraid. For all we know, he, he caught himself later and said, man, I wish I wouldn't have done that when he's warming himself by the fire. But if we've read the story before, we know it's the beginning of a continual denial. John recorded in chapter 13 that Jesus predicted this would happen. This is from John 13. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. As we are introduced here to Peter's denial, there is narrative tension. Pretend you've never read it before, but the question becomes, will he continue to deny? Will Jesus' words come true? And John leaves Peter at the charcoal fire, warming himself, probably kicking himself for what he just did. And at that point, John turns to Jesus and creates a stark contrast between Peter and Jesus. Let's begin by looking at verses 19 and 21. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They will know what I said. Jesus is questioned by the high priest. Now, just to clear up any confusion, here, Annas, A-N-N-A-S, is referred to as the high priest. But we might call him sort of the high priest emeritus. He was replaced by the Roman government by his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who we mentioned last week. And so when you see in verse 24, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest, it's like how we have two popes right now in the Catholic Church. You still call Pope Benedict Pope Benedict, even though he's not actually the Pope. Or with someone who has been president, you still refer to them as Mr. President, even though they're not currently the president. So I just wanted to clear that up here. But Jesus is questioned by Annas about his disciples and about his teachings. We don't know the specifics of what he asked, or the specifics of his questions, because what is important is Jesus' response. Jesus' response to these questions is to respond with the public nature of his ministry. Look at all the phrases in this text that describe the public nature of his teaching. So Jesus, verse 20, I've spoken openly to the world. Next, I've always taught in the synagogues and the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing 
in secret. And in verse 21, he references those who have heard me. Jesus is very clear that he spoke and didn't hide anything. Part of his innocence is that he spoke in this way. And the implied question is, why are you only asking me now? If what I'm doing was bad, why didn't you say anything back then? Either it wasn't bad, or you're not a just judge. Jesus is saying to the court in claiming his innocence that their inaction either testifies to their injustice or testifies, which is true, to his innocence. So Jesus demonstrates his innocence in holding fast to the idea of, I never said anything in secret and you guys never did anything. But Jesus continues in the second part, in verses 22 to 24, and again, we are to see the total and complete innocence of Jesus in this sham of a trial. So verse 22, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, when you don't like the outcome, sometimes you blame the process. The, per- the officer standing next to Jesus does not actually respond to what Jesus has said, but says, is that how you talk to the high priest? And, not to be too glib about this, but you know you've won the argument when the person's only response is to punch you in the face. But notice what Jesus does again to push forward this picture of innocence. Again, they can't argue with him about what he said about being in the public but them not doing anything. All they can do is resort to violence. But even in that, Jesus claims his innocence. Look what he says in verse 22. Or sorry, verse 23. Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Again, Jesus pushes his innocence. He says, If if I said something wrong, prove it. Bring witnesses, show evidence. They knew how to have courts back then. Let's not have contemporary snobbery here. They knew how to hold a trial. And Jesus said, go ahead, prove me wrong. But then he also calls out the activity. He says, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And again, look at their response. Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas the priest. (laughs) There's no response. They cannot have any witnesses. They don't have any evidence. The only response is to make him someone else's problem. We see throughout John's description of this 
is the complete and utter innocence of Jesus. In every part of his trial, we see his innocence. There's nothing guilty in Jesus. There are no probable claims made about his guilt even. We see a picture of Jesus in his innocence and his righteousness. And as we see this picture, we turn back to Peter. So you see in your outline there, guilty Peter strikes two and three. Let's look at verses 25 to 27. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once the rooster crowed. In John's account of this, he, he keeps the narrative pretty short and concise. If you want to read the other Gospels, you can see some more detail. I'm going to reference Luke's account a little bit later here. But there's an interesting piece of writing here where we left Peter warming himself by the fire in 18 and verse 29. We return right back there. It helps us to know, and the other accounts help us to know this, that, that this 25 to 27 are happening at the exact same time as 19 to 24. These are going on, these are parallel activities. So just as Jesus is demonstrating his innocence, here Peter falls and falls in denial. Peter is again questioned. In verse 24, you're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it. And then in verse 26, we see, unlike Jesus, who was asking for witnesses, here there is a witness. A man who was a relative of the, sorry, a servant of the high priest who was a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. And what does he say to Peter? He doesn't just say, Malchus told me about this. We met Malchus last week, whose ear Peter cut off. But he says, did I not see you in the garden with him? Apparently, he was there. We have eyewitness testimony. Again, in great contrast to the lack of eyewitness testimony in Jesus' trial. But even when confronted with that, Peter denies a third time. I want you to see that there were plenty of opportunities for Peter to turn back. God gave him three opportunities to do the right thing, but he persisted in his guilt. Again, one time we might say, oh, I got scared, I got, I got startled. I, I, I didn't expect to get, the, I, I tried to get in. If, if, if I said that, they wouldn't have let me in. But three times, there's a completeness to it. There's an intentionality we see. 
I'm not unsympathetic to Peter because I want us to see ourselves and our sin in the place of Peter. And I want to talk about this more at the end. But again, how often do we self-justify? How often do we cite the mitigating circumstances instead of simply admitting we were wrong? We treat sin like we've slipped on a banana peel instead of recognizing that sin is active denial of Jesus. And the contrast is clear. On one hand, you have guilty Peter. On the other hand, you have innocent Jesus. So what do I want us to take away from this story this morning? Number one, I've alluded to this already, that sin is active rebellion against God. I understand, but I don't like the phrase, to err is human. No, to be finite is human. To have physical limitations is human. To err is to be sinful. There are times, yes, when you you simply mess up. Accidents do happen. Yeah. Our litigating world needs to understand that accidents happen. But don't confuse the limits of your physical body with the fact that you are a sinner by nature and by choice. Don't take your sin too lightly. We are very, very good at minimizing and excusing our own sin. Now notice I said our own sin. (laughs) We are very good at magnifying the sin of others. But that's what I want you to see in the threefold denial of Peter. I want you to see your sin in that same lens. That there is intentionality, that it's not just whoops but that we need to take our sins seriously. And leading into that, and this is where I want to borrow from Luke's account. I I normally want to stick to the the passage because that's what John chose to write, uh, but I want to deviate slightly because I think it's helpful to look at some of the details that Luke provides that John doesn't. So in Luke 22... Verses 60 to 62, we read this. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of, how, of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is a powerful account of of what John records here more concisely. But what I want to focus on are those added details of 
Jesus makes eye contact with Peter. Again, that's why, that's why I, know, I wanted you to know 19 to 24 happens at exactly the same times as 25 to 27. Because in Luke, it tells us right when it happened, Peter looks at Jesus. Or Jesus looks at Peter, excuse me. But for our purposes today, I want you to see verse 62. And he went out and he wept bitterly. And as we hold our sins seriously, the next thing, the the next application I want you to see is that godly sorrow about our sin is the beginning step of repentance and forgiveness. When Peter was confronted through the eye contact of Jesus and the crowing of the rooster, he is confronted with his sin and as a sign of godly sorrow about that sin, he weeps. And that is the beginning of his process that leads to repentance and subsequent forgiveness. If you are not sorry for your sins, if your sins don't make you sad, you will never repent and find forgiveness. Again, the opposite thing. I can either excuse my sin or I can feel sorrow and ask for forgiveness. And Peter demonstrates, especially in Luke's account, a sorrow that leads to repentance. Paul picks this up in the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul writes, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Oftentimes, it is not until we actually feel sorry for our sins that we find ourselves moving to repenting of that sin and through repentance finding forgiveness. Because that's the end of Peter's story. This isn't the end. We're going to get there after Easter, so I'm just going to briefly allude to it. But in John chapter 21, we, we say that Jesus reinstates Peter. He finds forgiveness. He is reconciled. And what do we see in there, not to give too much away? But if Peter denied Jesus three times, Peter, or Jesus asked Peter, do you love me how many times? Three times. And it is from there that Peter then is introduced in Acts as one of the leaders of the early church. Peter found forgiveness, and I believe it started with weeping bitterly about his sin. And recognizing it's not just, whoops, I sinned, it's I have sinned and I need to be forgiven and I need to repent of that sin. Here's a good heart question for you. Are are you sad about your sin? Or do you fall into that trap of just making excuses, blaming your circumstances? I'm not saying accidents don't happen. I've done many of them. But when there is actual sin, we need to have godly sorrow that leads to repentance because when we repent through the death of Jesus, we find complete forgiveness. And that leads to my third application in here. That in his death on the cross, innocent Jesus pays for our guilt, makes forgiveness possible, and gives us his righteousness and innocence. I want to utilize Peter's own words 
for this point. In a text that obviously echoes the events of this trial, and it's what Bill read earlier in the service from 1 Peter chapter 2. Listen as I read. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was innocent. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but in continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. If that's not an allusion to the trial, I don't know what is. But what does he say next? 1 Peter 2, 24. He, that is Jesus, himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You are guilty. You have sinned. You can't make it up. You can't pay back the debt through being a good person. You cannot make yourself innocent. But thankfully, we hear from Peter himself. We hear from the one who denied Jesus three times. Who we see his guilt recorded for human history. <laughs> he said Jesus took that sin, took that guilt in himself, paid the price we deserve. That through Jesus, when we repent of that sin, and place our faith in Christ, we have died to sin and live to righteousness. If you repent of your sins and place your trust in Christ, you are given the innocence of Jesus. And when you have been made righteous, when you have been made innocent by Jesus, you are reconciled to the Father and have the hope of eternal life. Peter's denial was not the end of the story. Through the death of Jesus, Peter was forgiven, reconciled to God, and given the hope of eternal life. That offer is for you too, today. That if you repent of your sins and place your trust in Jesus and his death and resurrection, you will be dead to that sin and live to the righteousness and innocence of Christ. I want you to see yourself in Peter today. I want you to feel the weight of your sin, but find hope in the death of Jesus for you. That your guilt can be forgiven and you can make, be made innocent before the Father. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the bad news that we are just as guilty as Peter. But the good news is that you offer forgiveness and salvation to all who repent of their sins and place their trust in Christ. That we would not minimize our sin, that we would not excuse our sin, but that we would find forgiveness in the cross of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.